0: this episode of cheat codes a sickle cell podcast was made possible by global blood therapeutics and is intended for educational and informational purposes only visit gbt.com to learn more what's up warriors it's me dr z And me dr c what's up dr c how you doing I'm doing good. How are you doing, Dr. Z? Pretty good, man. It is January 20th. We are recording this literally on the day that we have a new president in this country. Five hours now. Historic day. I heard something that resonated with me pretty deeply, and I think you might like this. They said history is not always what happened 100 years ago. History is also what happened last week, and it's also what happened yesterday, and it's also what happened an hour ago. And as such, I think that it's important to acknowledge that, you know, e- even what we're doing with this podcast and the topic that we're addressing today, I think is is going to be important when people look back at this historically as a, as a moment in time where people started to recognize the importance of reproductive health and sickle cell disease.
1: We're living through history.
0: I love it, man. I love it. So we've got, we've got Miss Tiana Wolford, one of my favorite warriors, um, who's really amazing. Just tack- amazing. Tack- I mean, really, I mean, just tackling reproductive health from all angles. Um, we have got Miss Christy Van Horn, a public health expert, co-host of Flow, a bloodstream media podcast, and, um, you know, uh, talks a little bit about how how to talk to your doctor. Um, so I think, I think we got some good stuff going on this episode.
1: Good. Yeah, for sure. Good stuff. All right, man. You- Let's get to it.
0: yeah so i uh you know i came across for the first time miss tiana wolford i want to say it was in washington dc maybe at an access to care meeting is the first time i met her live and from that first interaction i kind of i kind of knew right away that this was going to be somebody who changes the way that i think about sickle cell disease somebody who i learn from um and i'm you know, I think maybe besides you, Dr. C, Tiana someone I speak to probably second most. Um, And I've learned so much about sickle cell disease from her. I am so, so happy to have Miss Tiana Wolford on with us today. Hello, T. Welcome, welcome, welcome.
2: Hi. I'm so (laughs) excited to be here. I feel like this has been in the works for a little bit.
0: Absolutely. Uh, You know, I mostly, I needed to make sure that we had all of our sort of stuff together before we got you on. We we need to do justice to your story and your initiative. So I think we've got it together. And um, I think we're in a spot where now we can get the story out there and and talk a little bit about, you know, your initiative. So I'm, I'm really happy you're here. Yep,
2: me too. Let's do it.
0: Let's do it. Let's start right from the beginning, though. Tell us a little bit about your journey with sickle cell disease. Start with your genotype. How about that?
2: All right. SS. You know, I I was really fortunate to be born into a family that was somewhat prepared for what sickle cell could mean. My mom was um, a nurse and she had been studying sickle cell since she was in the fifth grade. She did a dissertation on it in nursing school and everything. So the only problem was she was told repeatedly by my father that he did not have the trait. And that's not a story that's unique to me as a warrior. Um, I hear that all the time. So like as a child, I did pretty well. I was not having a lot of VOCs. I did struggle with like acute chest pneumonia quite a bit. And it really wasn't until I hit puberty that things kind of started spiraling out of control. And it was just, I was transfusion dependent and I had a transfusion reaction that sent me into liver failure. By the time I was 16, I had both my hips replaced. It was just a lot going on. And my high school experience is kind of important to how I became the advocate that I am today. I went to a predominantly white school and they were unapologetic about the fact that they knew nothing about sickle cell. So I had to educate and advocate from a very early age so that um, the people around me could kind of understand what I was going through. And it was so hard. Um, I remember in 12th grade, I had missed like 60% of school. I was absent so much. And my graduation, my high school diploma was on the line. It was just chaos. (laughs) But um, I overcame all of that. And then when I graduated, you know, I just had this vision for myself, this other life that I wanted to live, but I couldn't because my body was constantly failing me. And that's kind of what led me to um, have my bone marrow transplant.
0: How old were you at, the to- at that time when you approached this option of uh, curative therapy?
2: So I first got approached about it by my hematologist at 18. And he was like, I just, I'm, I'm scared for you. I don't want to see you going like this and we need to do something about it. So, you know, I got on to be the match registry and like so many of us, I did not have a donor. So I kind of let that go. And then it was actually one of my mom's nursing students who came to her and they were like, have you heard about this protocol that NIH and Hopkins is doing where you can get a half match? And I didn't know anything about that. So <laughs> I was so depressed and so desperate. So you know, we went to this consult and I listened to some of the risk. And this beautiful picture was painted for me about you know, I'm scared if you don't do this, you're going to die. But if you do this, you're going to have a whole different life. I was ready to have a different life. But my hesitation was, I've always wanted six children. Like I've been saying that since I was 14. And I knew that the risk with like the radiation and the chemo, I knew that that could potentially make me infertile. And I remember looking at the doctor and saying, I'm really scared. I don't want to be infertile. And he said to me, he was like, well, I don't know why you'd be worried about this process making you infertile because with all the complications you've had from sickle cell, you're probably already infertile. And I told you like, I, I was depressed and I was not as informed as I am today. So I really believed that. And um, I kind of lost hope. And then I remember doing like a little bit of research and trying to see if I could freeze my eggs before the procedure and the cost was just astronomical. Like there was no way. So, you know, we let that go. Fast forward to 10 years later, I got a call from my hematologist, Dr. Lydia Pecker. We had tested my hormone levels. And she was like, girl, we never talked about this, but if you want children, we need to seriously have some conversations about fertility preservation. And I remember just going on Google and looking at grants. Every grant for fertility preservation was for women with cancer. And I emailed her that night in like the middle of the night, three o'clock in the morning. And I was like, okay, what if we get together and we start an organization and we just give away (laughs) fertility preservation grants because there's so many of us pursuing these care therapies and she was really excited and she was super supportive but she was like i think we can do more than give away grants like that's just putting a bandaid over it let's try to change some of the policies let's try to change some of the laws and then i went to a conference one of my mentors dr kim smith whitley was speaking and she did this whole like hour and a half long talk about all these reproductive health issues with contraception and pregnancy and I just had no idea.
0: It's such a such a big issue. I mean and we really don't talk about it in sickle cell disease for sure. Sickle cell disease and its effect on reproductive health is immense and very misunderstood. We talk about often the effect of for example the menstrual cycle on pain in sickle cell disease something that was published by um, Mike Debon, ourselves and some other, and uh, Dr. Andra James, you know, a few years ago, Dr. C, right?
1: Yeah. Uh, two, two years ago, maybe
0: two years ago. Um, but we see, we see young females with dysfunctional uterine bleeding, heavy menstrual bleeding in the context of sickle cell disease very frequently. And this is a really good segue to pull in another guest who we have on with us today, knowing that we're part of this bloodstream family. You know, of course, Bloodstream Media has multiple podcasts in the space of health. One of the podcasts, though, is called Flow. One of the hosts of Flow is Christy Van Horn, who is a public health expert with a specific focus on some of these issues. So I want, I want, to, I want to pull Christy in right here. Hi, Christy.
3: Hi, guys. How are you? Thanks for having me.
0: Of course. It's our pleasure. So Christy, tell us a little bit about, after hearing sort of a little bit of what Tiana just started scraping the surface with, tell us a little bit about what you're thinking.
3: I have questions. (laughs) I think that there's not, and I say this as somebody who's worked in both bleeding disorders and reproductive health. I do not think that there's enough information and support for those living with sickle cell. When I think about heavy menstrual bleeding, um, I have questions around what resources are there. I know for those with VWD or women with hemophilia, you know, they can take uh, contraception. That helps. I mean, what resources are there out there for women who have sickle cell to help manage their their heavy menstrual bleeding and pain?
1: It's a... a relatively young field. So there's just a little bit of research coming out about managing heavy menstrual bleeding and really a lot of times even normal menstrual bleeding, but that incites a lot of pain and, and other challenges. And I, you know, I think there's been a lot of use of Depo-Provera um, and a little bit of oral contraceptives, and there may be some benefits there, um, but the, the, a lot of issues. And, and then I think recently, especially there's been a lot of concerns about fertility and um, both fertility related to sickle cell disease itself and to the treatments. So in Tiana's case, bone marrow transplant prep is very hard on the reproductive system, but even some of the medicines that we use routinely may have some detrimental effects on on reproductive health. So I, I think it's an understudied area in sickle cell and really is just starting to to get its due and get off the ground, I think because of things like what Tiana's what doing.
0: Yeah, so the common theme that you're going to see, Christy, in sickle cell disease is there are no resources, period. And when you add that extra layer um, to the racial health disparities of health disparities in women, particularly women of color, it's a, it's a different level. And then you add, even as part of reproductive health, if you add in LGBTQ, right, into that, it's another layer of disparity. So reproductive health comes with all of these These disparities. I want to say the foundation for for women and girls with blood disorders has definitely emphasized that they want to make sickle cell disease something that is priority for them as well, which is something that I think has really come up in the last few years. Do you agree with that, Dr. C? I I think we have heard that narrative quite a bit. Um, I'm not entirely clear right now what they're doing as far as providing resources, though. So there's definitely a gap here that needs to be filled.
2: Well, and yeah, that's why I'm so excited about what we're doing because I have been in touch with them, and their resources are for physicians only. But as far as resources for patients, there really has not been any.
0: Very interesting. I didn't make that. I didn't make that distinction between between sort of what they're doing. That is a physician-based resource. Very interesting. So, Christy. What other questions do you have for us about about what you've heard so far?
3: I, I also have a couple of questions related directly to pain. I know that that's the primary uh, symptom, correct, of sickle cell is, is just overwhelming pain. Is that true?
0: It's definitely the loudest symptom.
3: Are menstrual periods more severe or longer? I guess maybe, Tiana, do you feel like you have extreme periods or is that a stupid question
2: (laughs) no listen there are no stupid questions so definitely before my transplant menstrual like heavy menstrual bleeding was a thing and then one thing that happened to me that I didn't even share is that during this whole process when I got my transplant my bone marrow shut down for like four months and it took my platelets six years to recover. So, um, I, yeah, bleeding has always been a thing for me. And then on top of that, I've had like four pulmonary embolisms. So being on blood thinners, it's just been a vicious cycle. What I will say is that I did get an IUD place and that has helped to control the bleeding.
3: Oh, good. And, and just going back to, to resources for patients, because that's another hat that I wear, uh, not just the co-host of 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 flow, but also, you know, I am a public health consultant and I have a sister project called how to talk to your doctor. So what resources do you wish you had in a perfect world? What, what do you wish that people with sickle cell had access to what would help you?
2: Wow, Um, that's such a layered question. And as an advocate in this space, um, I've had a a lot of time to think about that. Specifically to reproductive health, we just need some education and awareness there. You know, there's so many questions. Like I was talking to Doctor Z the other night in the Facebook groups with the warriors. People just have questions, and so if we could have like a trusted place that we could go to to ask these questions that would be amazing. Um, And we, you know, we just need better access to care. And I was so intrigued what you said about your sister project that really resonates with me about how to talk to your doctor, because I talk to Dr. Z about this all the time, too. There's such a gap and there's such a divide between warriors and physicians. And unfortunately, everyone is not like Dr. Z. Everyone doesn't you know, work over time to try to understand the real life experience that warriors go through. So uh, there, there's, there's so much there. Like we, we just need everything. We need so many resources.
3: And I would assume too, with sickle cell, there's that lack of trusting the patient experience when you're first trying to get diagnosed. So really overcoming those barriers. Um, it seems like you you were diagnosed early on, is that typical with sickle cell or how long does it?
0: Yeah, that's a great question, Christy. One of the nice things about the United States now is that in basically every state, sickle cell disease shows up on the newborn screen. So every child that's born here um, will get tested for an abnormal hemoglobin and, and sickle cell disease will get picked up usually in that, in that abnormal, um, if that screen is abnormal. What we know about sickle cell disease is, you know, there is basically one child with sickle cell disease born every hour in this country. It is the most common genetically inherited disease in, in the country and um, in the world, in fact, but doesn't get definitely the awareness or the recognition that it deserves to have because it is it is a disease of, of minorities. You know, this how to talk to your doctor thing, I want to say I was looking it up through today in between patients as I was trying to trying to get here on time, it really resonates with me too, because that is a critical problem in sickle cell disease. We don't have effective ways to communicate with patients on issues that matter to patients. And, and I think what matters to patients and what matters to doctors are really unaligned in sickle cell disease. And one of those things like like right now, we're talking about reproductive health, for example, in, in, in males with sickle cell disease, a devastating complication is priapism, right? Which is prolonged sort of painful erections as sickle cells get caught in the penis. That's an under-recognized, under-discussed issue in sickle cell disease, right? And it's something that is difficult to approach when you're an adolescent teen male with your provider. So, so there's so many layers. I totally agree with what T was saying. There's so many layers to this breakdown and how patients talk to doctors, but, but more importantly, how doctors talk to patients, I think.
1: And I think there's so many areas where this can fall apart. I've thought about this, not even just in the context of sickle cell, but all of the patients I see, I, you know, I think, there's sort of a, a, a script and the patient comes in with, you know, maybe some issues they want to get addressed and, and I have some issues that I want to talk about and things I want to get to. But there's a lot of things that neither of us are going to touch on that really we could address and make things better, but they're just not going to come up and I, I think like infertility and, re, and reproductive health are, are on that list you know, I think we'll talk about pain, we'll talk about your last hospital admission, we'll talk about the screening that you needed to do. But, uh, you know, a teenage girl probably doesn't want to bring up to me their reproductive health, and it's probably not going to naturally come up in conversation unless there's some real acute specific issue. So so I I think a lot of things like that. And it's, it's not specifically a sickle cell issue. I think, you know, I take care of bleeding disorder patients. And there are all sorts of issues that just never come across our, our, uh, our discussion. And I, I think, you know, maybe we need tools uh, to tease out where there are issues that we should talk about.
0: You know, to me, the answer has been social media, right? That, that has been my tool that I'm trying to use to close the gap a little bit, right? But there's not that many people who who sort of buy into that type of methodology. In fact, the father of modern medicine, Sir William Osler, you know, in the 1800s suggested that doctors should be quiet observers and uh, be available in times of sorrow uh, to offer hope and, you know, just be bystanders. But, but, but I think that, that that's rapidly changing because the way that patients process information it has changed. It's continuous. It's an ongoing process that really requires doctors to be engaged in To make sure that they don't become victims of misinformation, disinformation, all the stuff that's sort of floating around, this infodemic that's literally killing patients. I mean, we spend a lot of time in clinic trying to mop up the mess that social media has created in a patient's life, right? You see that T as an advocate all the time, right? You see conversations that are just spiraling out of control.
2: Especially in this COVID and vaccine world that we're living in. Oh my goodness.
0: So I'm curious, Christy, about, you know, the sister pet project that you're talking about as a public health expert, someone who's well-renowned in sort of this type of arena. What are, how how do we as sickle cell providers become better at this? How do sickle cell warriors become better at, at engaging with their physicians? What tips and tricks do you have?
3: I think one of my biggest tips that is, is very simple, but people have an aha moment when I talk about it, is really setting expectations for your visits. So we all know we have limited time together, right? So prioritizing what's, what's going on, thinking about it before, you're, before you go. Um, I have a few worksheets to help people do this how to other things include, you know, how to describe my symptoms in a way that's going to help my doctor understand what's going on with me, writing down questions. And actually another doctor that I work closely with gave me this idea, but she's like, if you feel unsure, and this could go to the embarrassment about, you know, the, the pain that a a teen could be feeling um, in his penis that you, that you mentioned, and also just embarrassment about talking about, you know, menstrual cycles, um, with your hematologist. But writing your questions down, if you feel uncomfortable, just handing the sheet to the doctor and going through the questions together, it, taking the pressure off of having to say it can make such a huge difference and just really um change that dynamic. The other thing, too, that you have to, you know, it's not always easy, especially if we live in rural areas but finding a doctor that you work, can work with, that you trust, that you, know, you, you can obviously tell that you two have this relationship. So that's so important and vital. It's not always easy, but I don't think people realize sometimes that you do have the option to seek second opinions. You can actively find another doctor. And I know that that's time consuming, annoying, and all of the things, but it can make such a huge difference those are some of my top tips. Um, But I think again, just those expectations, what can I get done this particular visit? Can I have extra time with my doctor? So much of everything comes back to those expectations because then the doctor's not feeling like I'm not achieving what I need to. And the patient doesn't come in feeling already disappointed because they didn't get through what they wanted to. So I think that's part of changing the mindset. In a perfect world, we would change our medical system, but that's going to take some time.
0: <laughs> well, that's fair. That's fair. T, have you ever experienced that? Have you ever experienced like what you needed to get addressed in clinic wasn't wasn't sort of like you had misaligned priorities, you couldn't get out what you needed to get out and
2: no, but I'm I'm a little different. Um, I, I I don't. Good. Respect. I love hearing this. Actually. <laughs> <laughs> I don't. Yes. Yeah, I, I don't really like respect boundaries. So if I if I didn't get to say what I wanted to say, um, I will email you. <laughs> I will call you. <laughs> so um, that, that's just me. But as I was listening to you, like those are really great tips. And before I was like this reproductive health advocate, I was just a spastic advocate and trying to tackle everything in the community. And while we have you here I need your expertise to kind of give us guidance because it's. I don't think it's necessarily that sickle cell warriors have a hard time with their hematologist. I think our issue really comes from the emergency room and it's the doctors that don't know you. And a lot of times what we deal with is like these misconceptions and these stigmas that we're drug seekers. And it's like when you're at a 10 out of 10 pain and you're expected to kind of prove yourself, that's difficult. That's where the communication gap really is. It's like those ER providers who don't know us.
3: Yeah. And I just want to piggyback off of something that was said earlier about, you know, intersecting identities. So is a a black person, a gay person, or if you identify as all of the above, you're going to face more discrimination and more barriers when you attempt to get pain treatment. So, you know, I I just want to piggyback off of that because it's really important to highlight that as well. Uh, I think something that you can do, I've seen other people with chronic conditions do this, is actually have a letter from their doctor so when they go to the emergency room, they're prepared. They have this letter from their doctor that says, "I have sickle cell, I'm not a drug seeker. this is actually what's going on with me." And then offering, I actually just did an interview on on my blog with a somebody who has severe VWD and she was, very forgiving in the interview that I did with her. She's like, I don't blame doctors that don't understand my condition, especially ER doctors, because they can't be expected to know everything. But at the same time, shes it's been challenging throughout her life because of the situation that you're describing. She has her hematologist available, the phone number available with her at all times. So it's kind of like a little to go, you know, not binder, but she has information to take with her that helps her advocate for herself when she's in the emergency room.
0: Yeah, we've, uh, you know, we've always been of that sort of thought process that more information is, you know, the weapon you need to navigate through a hostile ER encounter. And, and the truth of the matter is, I mean, we we basically just have to acknowledge that racism is completely intertwined with, you know, the, the, te- the tenets of pathophysiology that, that sickle cell patients have. You know, I feel like it's an important uh, sort of symptom. It's it's a it's a symptom of the disease that healthcare has that that really breaks down in exponential ways in the ER. I I think that you know, Christy, you've given us a lot to think about here as far as this lack of communication efficiency and some really good pointers. And I, and I appreciate that. I feel like we veered away from reproductive health. So let's (laughs) jump back to, I want to, I want to hear a little bit more uh, Tiana about um, SC Red. Now I, I am involved in this organization pretty heavily at this point, but I'm going to still have you tell us what SC red stands for because i don't want to get it wrong.
2: Yeah, you know, we've we had a time trying to name this organization. So, um, i i settled on SC red and it stands for the sickle cell reproductive health education directive and um we're definitely going to be drifting from the education piece, but that was the best i could do. Um, so it's really my vision for this organization is to bring awareness to the reproductive health concerns. And like you were saying, Dr. Z, because even when I called you about this vision, I was talking about women and girls and you were like, don't forget about the guys. So, you know, we're, we're trying to bring awareness first and foremost. And then- education for patients and providers. And then there's a huge advocacy piece to it. One thing that I will be heavily advocating for is fertility preservation, especially for those of us who pursue these curative therapies. Um, like I said, when I look at the cancer population, there's it's basically built into their protocols. We don't have that. And even these gene therapy protocols, I was shocked. To find out that egg freezing and sperm banking wasn't a part of that so there's a huge advocacy piece there and then um, you know i've I've brought some of the leading doctors into this organization who i hope will be able to drive research you know dr z it's not lost on me that i really went and sought out the biggest most busiest names in this community but dr z is actually the chair of my board so it's overwhelming a little bit for me because I was just coming into this because of my own infertility diagnosis. And what, like, I I just didn't bargain for all this. I didn't know that there was such a gap here and that there was such a need. And I, I just hope that as a team, we can rise to the occasion. And, you know, I, I believe in us and, I think that we'll be able to get some beautiful things done. It's such a beautiful community and they deserve so much more.
0: Dr. C, I see you pondering over there.
1: (laughs) I mean, this is great. It is a, you know, huge unmet need and and hopefully curative therapies are going to become bigger and bigger. And, um, you know, this is an issue for uh, men with sickle cell related to sickle cell disease and, non-curative therapies too probably have an impact on fertility. so I think there's so much work to do here and I'm excited that there's a group out there advocating and bringing resources and bringing attention and minds to the to the space.
0: Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, I think that we are um, you know we like like I like I alluded to earlier, I mean, we have a population that's already ignored and and then you add these complications that are difficult to talk about um starting, from delayed puberty, right, as a very serious and common effect of sickle cell disease, to the heavy menstrual bleeding we spoke about, to to infertility, to 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 clots from oral contraceptives, uh, LGBTQ issues. This is this is going to be a really big undertaking, T. Um, and uh, yeah, I mean, and I know it started out as as not this, but you have unlocked a really you've opened Pandora's box <laughs> and, and now that it's open, it's gonna, this is all going to come at you. Um, and us, I should say, um, right. <laughs> be, because I mean, you know, me and you have been pretty active on clubhouse and we, I mean, in that room the other day, we, you heard the, the issues that some of these warriors have, the, the concerns they have about their reproductive health. And we're talking about a hundred thousand people in this country who, who are dealing with this, uh, day in and day out. So this is going to be a big task, but I think you're the perfect person for it.
2: Thank you. I appreciate that. I appreciate that. I'm, I'm excited. I, like I said, I had no idea, but this support that I'm already getting, we're we're not even up and running. And when I tell you that, I guess I've been Kind of laying the groundwork for this organization before i even knew it so you know i spent a lot of time at rare disease conferences health equity conferences and i have people from other disease populations who are like how can we get involved so you know it, and, and that we need that it's going to take all of us like i need buy-in <laughs> from everyone but you know i was i had a little moment last night that was pretty powerful i was talking to somebody else who's about to undergo a bone marrow transplant. And she was just talking to me about how she's given up on the dream that she'll have biological children of her own. And it's exciting to me to be able to get this organization off the ground. And it's literally inspired by the children that I don't even have, that so many warriors don't even have. And I think that that that's a really beautiful thing.
0: Absolutely. Very, very well said. So, so T, I, I guess as we're as we're coming to a close here, and and um, and Christy, we, um, you know, one thing that I definitely want to leave warriors with is an action item. So, what can listeners here right now, warriors, physicians, first T, do for SC Red? And then Christy, if sickle cell warriors want to hear more about what you're doing with your work, how can they? find your work, participate. I wanna hear from both of you.
2: I think for right now, the only action item that I can give to them is to just get ready. I hope that they feel empowered to start having some really intimate discussions with us because really I am learning from them. When we were in Clubhouse and people were opening up about their reproductive health concerns, I, I just had no idea. So my biggest action item is just to empower yourself to get ready to talk about some uncomfortable things so that as a community, we can really do the work. Um, I I need everyone involved in this, and I, I definitely cannot do this without the Warriors, and that's something that is Really important to me, and that's why, Dr. Z, it meant a lot for me to bring you into this, because you're so trusted and respected in the community, and we we really just need the warriors to get involved. So that's my biggest thing, is to just keep up with us and um, <laughs> be patient and graceful with me, <laughs> because I have no experience, but I think that's the main thing. Just Just help us.
0: Love it. Love it. Miss Christie.
3: Um, Do you mind if I ask Tiana a very quick question? Of course. (laughs) Maybe it's not quick, Um, but what do you wish
2: other people
3: knew about life with sickle cell?
2: So a lot of times when I come across people, they don't even know what sickle cell is. And then the few people that do, they think it's just pain. And while that is like the hallmark of sickle cell, I wish that people knew how it really impacts like every aspect of your life. And and it's not just pain, like there's fatigue and chronic pain and organ damage. And, you know, we, we focus on all of that physical and then we don't even take time to think about the mental toll. That living with this disease takes, in having to constantly fight against stigmas and prove yourself. So I just think that people underestimate sickle cell. It's, you know, I, I wish I could change that.
0: Christy, can I add one thing to that beautiful yeah, response? Yeah, please. A, a lot of she's exactly right in in that. You know, a lot of people think sickle cell disease is a disease of pain.
3: Mm, I did,
0: and and that's a. That's, that that to me, as I've learned more about sickle cell disease, feels like it's a damaging way to think about sickle cell disease. And the way, yeah. the way that I think is better to think about it. And this is what I try to impart on the trainees now that I work with in the hospital and, and even the patients, because the patients have that narrative too, that this is a disease of pain. Right. But that's that's a, that suppresses their health. The way I want people to think about this disease is this is a disease of reduced lifespan. Because whether or not you're having pain, sickle cell patients have a life expectancy that's 20, 25 years less than the rest of the population. And when you think about it with that lens, it's a, it's a little bit of a it's a little bit of a morbid lens. But what it does is it changes your priorities from from pain and comfort to life. H- how do I prolong a life here with good quality, right? Instead of the band-aid of just covering up the pain because I could cover up the pain all I need to, but but those kidneys might still shut down. That that brain might still stroke. Thinking about it like that, I think is a little bit more empowering for the whole community. And And I
1: think, you know, Missing 60% of your senior year of high school and having to have surgeries and, you know, all of the impacts that has on your life. It's not, it's not just about the pain. It's about, you know, missed opportunities. It's about having children. It's about, so I I think, you know, those are all areas that we need, need to make progress.
3: No, thank you. And that's why I asked, because I think sometimes with so many conditions that, the general public sees it one way but mm-hmm. your lived experience is much different. So thank you for that.
2: Thanks for the question.
3: No, of course. Um I would love to have you on my blog if you, <laughs> if you're interested. You could talk about your um your experience and your your organization which I think is amazing. And of course, I would love for people to tune into Flow. We have new episodes out every second Thursday of the month. Very first episode was just released this month. Um, In February, we're going to be talking about what is abnormal. And then uh, in March, we're going to be talking about what is disordered. Some really good episodes coming up. And for me personally, you can follow me on Instagram at how to talk to your doctor. It's that's just my handles, how to talk to your doctor. And my website is also how to talk to your doctor. And you can find out more information about my, my projects and contact information there as
0: well. Awesome. Well, we just exposed you to a community that is actually going to find you. And it's, I hope it, so.
3: I hope and- <laughs> so. It was such a pleasure to be here. And I learned so much. So thank you for having me.
0: Thank you for being on, Christy. We appreciate it. Miss Tiana, I look forward to doing big things with you.
2: Absolutely.
0: We appreciate your presence on the podcast. And, uh, you know, both of you are probably going to find some, some more invites coming to your inbox soon uh, to, to reconnect and um, have some more conversations.
1: Yeah, thank you both so much. Thank Such an so important much. topic. Cheat Codes is brought to you by our founding sponsor, Global Blood Therapeutics. GBT is a biopharmaceutical company committed to discovering, developing, and delivering life-changing treatments that provide hope to underserved patient communities, including sickle cell disease. GBT is grounded by a mission-driven culture and built with a team of experienced and passionate people committed to making a difference in the communities it serves. Cheat Codes is grateful to GBT for sponsoring today's episode and serving the sickle cell community. So uh we're now on to my favorite segment and that's where Dr. Z catches me up on what's going on. I have not been invited to the clubhouse yet. I just got an Instagram. I haven't figured out what to do with it yet. But uh Dr. Z keeps me up to date on what's happening. So Dr. Z, what's what's going on in your uh and your tick the
0: first thing i gotta tell you man is clubhouse as it stands right now is a iphone only app i got five invites yesterday to send out and i was gonna send one to you and then i re- I realized that you you gave up the fruit
1: yeah i'm off the fruit also i think it would be a little bit wasted on me i, I think there's probably people you would invite
0: who would use it more Maybe, maybe. So let let, let me, you know, I I know that I told you that I had a vision for how this segment would go today. I'm going to change it up a little bit on you. All right. I'm going to talk about an experience I had in clinic. So while talking about a new therapy with a patient, maybe a month ago, I discussed the therapy with them. They did the homework that I assigned. They took home the information. They read the information. And then they came back and said, no. I don't want to start this therapy. And I said, oh, okay, that's, that's fair. I, I, I respect that choice. Can I ask why? And the mom of this patient said to me, I looked at the side effects of this drug and the side effects of this drug say things like headache, chest pain, fatigue, pulmonary embolism, abdominal pain. She said, my child already has chest pain, already has abdominal pain already has headaches. Why would I start a medication that has these side effects? I I thought that would be an interesting conversation to have because I think it's worth clarifying what adverse reactions in clinical trials mean.
1: I worry about this a little bit because I think when you see that and especially sometimes there are really bad ones on there, right? There are some really bad you know, scary side effects on there. I think it would be easy to look at that like your patient did and say, man, that doesn't sound worth it. I think the thing that people need to realize is, you know, when when we do these trials, we capture everything. We're seeing patients very frequently. We're asking them what happened this week. We're asking them, you know, did you have this, 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 this? I, you know, I saw a great Twitter post the other day that I think highlights the point that that we're discussing here. So it was a list of side effects from the coronavirus vaccine. And it said 35% fatigue, I think 4% fever, 12% diarrhea, on and on. I think 40% headache. It was, you know, high numbers and all sorts of side effects. Yeah, yeah. And it said, Would you take this? And then it said, actually, this is the placebo arm. And so I, you know, I, I think people have headaches all the time. People have diarrhea sometimes. People, you know, they get urinary tract infections, all of those things. If you're not on a drug trial, you, you had some diarrhea, you had a headache. If you're on a drug trial, that's now potentially a side effect of the medicine. It doesn't mean that it is. So in a lot of trials, we have a placebo and we have the medicine and that's helpful because sometimes you have, you know, 20% headaches, but the placebo also had 20% headaches. And you can say, well, that's probably not from the drug. Just maybe 20% of people get headaches, but the, the hard ones are, you know, sometimes rare bad things happen and, you know, somebody gets in a car accident. Well, that's probably not from the drug. We can say that, but Sometimes people have a stroke and they were on the medicine. Was it from the drug? Hard to say. You can't really say. Right. But sometimes people have strokes who are not on the medicine. And even just one patient on the trial has something like that. That's in the package label. And it's a potential side effect of the drug. That's not to say drugs don't have side effects because some of them do have side effects and some of them have serious side effects. I think it's really easy to get scared off by by that kind of list. So, so what did you say to this patient?
0: You know, we, we, we basically went over a lot of those, a lot of those principles that you just discussed, but like one of the things that we talked about was a new drug, a new therapy, for example, that is quote unquote natural. Uh, You know what I'm talking about. Everyone else knows what I'm talking about. Then we went over the adverse events and she said to me, well, if this is natural, natural products don't have side effects. Why does this have side effects? So I gave her the example of peanuts. And you tell me what you think about this. I said, if peanuts were a drug that were being rolled out as a therapy, and you looked at the adverse events, it would say 10% of people had serious anaphylaxis and allergic reaction. 5% of patients choked and required removal of the peanut from their their their, their lung. You know, natural products, the goal of natural products is whenever I, I laugh a little bit, when I hear about that, you know, natural products doesn't mean, of course, as we know, that there are no side effects, right? It doesn't mean. That,
1: yeah. No, I, I mean, cyanide is a natural product. Uh, vi- viper venom is a natural product.
0: I mean, sunlight, sunlight's adverse event is melanoma, right? Yeah. So, so, I yeah. mean, we, it's, it, th- there's no such thing as a natural product or any product. That's not your body that, doesn't have some type of effect. We had this long conversation. I think, it, I think it ended up being pretty positive, but it was interesting to me that there was this need to have this conversation to really give the, the context of what we mean when we talk about adverse events. Because I think that one of the things we need to let patients know is that industry, the federal government, really is protecting themselves a little bit too, right? With this. Right. They really do want to make sure that they have disclosed every possible bad thing that happened during a clinical trial.
1: And and I think that's the right thing to do. I mean, I, I think you want to be as transparent as possible. You want as much information as possible. But I think what well, the result of that is sometimes what you're talking about, which is, you know, you look at the, the side effect profile and it's, whole, you know, Right. Long and you know, they have that guy at the end of the advertisement on TV who says a million things really fast.
0: Yeah. I mean, we want that type of transparency, but I think it I think it's mandated upon us as then the physicians to help our patient navigate that.
1: Absolutely. And and I think, you know, sometimes even for us, that takes experience. So I, I think, you know, sometimes a new drug comes out and we maybe weren't part of the trial. We don't have a lot of experience using it, and we look at those side effect profiles and think. I don't know. But then I think, you know, you start to use it. And, uh, you know, I I think another important point is for most medicines and most of those side effects, if you start to have them, you can stop the medicine. It's not a one way decision. So if you're taking a medicine and one of the side effects is diarrhea and it's giving you diarrhea, you know, there might be some things you can do to make that better. It might go away with time, but you could also say, you know what, this diarrhea is awful. I don't want this anymore. I'm going to stop the medicine. So I, I think for a lot of the you know common side effects, headaches, diarrhea, fatigue, it's potentially reversible. You just stop the medicine, and and so if you get those, then then stop. I think some of the big scary ones, some of them are real, but a lot of them are just you know a bad thing happened. There was uh, COVID vaccines. There was a transverse myelitis. Right, which is a pretty rare thing. Could it be from the vaccine? Absolutely. Could it be, you know, somebody's gotta get that. There are 30,000 people on the trial. Coincidence? Possibly. They gotta look into it. If you start to see a bunch of, you know, some rare thing that doesn't happen very often, you see a bunch of them in the trial, then, you know, maybe it is from that. But if you just see one or two of them, it's Hard to say, and that's got to go in the package. That's got to be something we consider. I, I think when, as you consider it, you also have to consider that it could just be a random chance.
0: Awesome, man. Well, I wanted to just, you know, I wanted to run this by you. I had a, you know, I thought that this was an interesting conversation, and I think it's one that mandates a little bit of attention uh, and maybe a little bit proactive attention as we go forward. Good, good. That's what's happening. <laughs> okay Dr. Mike I am uh, ready for you to bring a little bit of that trademark Callahan scholarship to this episode I think I need a little bit of that intellect that you bring to to cheat codes a sickle cell podcast to even out the you know the 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 whatever whatever the opposite of intellect is that I bring to cheat codes I need you to even that out so the way I want you to do that is by telling us a little bit about, an interesting contribution to this area of reproductive health and sickle cell disease.
1: Yeah, I'm gonna just say, I disagree with your whole intro to this segment, but I'm excited to talk (laughs) today about uh, this uh, paper. It's actually from uh, a doctor we talked about on the episode, um, Dr. Lydia Pecker and Sophie Lanscron and their group um, at Johns Hopkins. This paper was published in the British Journal of Hematology. Which is a good journal. It's called Hydroxycarbamide, which is what the British call hydroxyurea exposure and ovarian reserve in women with sickle cell disease in the multi center study of hydroxycarbamide. So we talked about that multi center study the in multi-center episode. multi center study of I hydroxycarbamide was, uh, I, I think so. I think it was uh, actually, I can, it was episode three, the mesh study. So, um, that that was actually you know the first really uh, big good randomized controlled trial to show the benefits of hydroxyurea and sickle cell disease. Um, so this is you know going back a couple decades, and what they did here is I, I think really clever. So we were talking today about uh, fertility issues in sickle cell disease, and so they they wanted to look at that particularly in the setting of use of hydroxyurea. And so the, the patients who were on that uh, mesh study had blood samples collected and they froze and banked a lot of those blood samples to keep for future, future studies. And so this is one of those studies. So th- this is uh, what we call a retrospective study. They're looking back, but they're also uh, measuring things in samples collected from those studies. Now, unfortunately, you know, these are precious samples and they get used for different, different questions. And there weren't any from the original study, but there were a lot of samples from the continuation study. So after the study stopped, they continued to follow the patients um, and collect samples annually. Um, and information to look at, you know, long-term safety and efficacy of of hydroxyurea, you know, how well it worked over time, were there any new side effects that they saw over time, and they collected samples at those time points.
0: And this is really important because this is like what gives us confidence to have conversations about hydroxyurea when we talk to patients, right? These types A-
1: absolutely. of Absolutely. These kind of, because, you, you know, it's, there's different ways you can collect information but one of the best ways is a randomized controlled trial and you're often limited in that to a small time period. But with these follow-up studies, you can continue to see what happened to the people who got randomized to nothing or randomized to your drug over a longer period of time. Um, And and sometimes you have late side effects. Sometimes you have late benefits. Like if you want to see if a drug's making people live longer, you have to wait until they would start dying and then you can see if they live longer, which might take decades. Um, so to have these extension studies and follow right. people over a long time, you can start to see, yep, hydroxyuria does prolong people's lives. It does decrease, um, you know, some some of these long term problems. In this study, what they did is they looked at the female patients who were on the this multi center study of hydroxyuria, and they had uh, I think 153. Uh, female patients who were on that study and they were able to find 285 blood samples from 93 of those patients. It's a good, good size sample. Now, the one, one of the challenges of this study is that after the, the um, study ended and we knew that hydroxyurea prevented pain episodes, it prevented acute chest, it was effective, it got FDA approved for treatment of sickle cell a lot of the patients who were on the placebo before started taking it. And so in this follow-up study, a lot of the patients were on hydroxyurea. And and that creates some challenges because if you want to see what hydroxyurea does to fertility, you would really like to see a group of patients who are just like the ones on hydroxyurea but had never gotten hydroxyurea. And unfortunately, only seven of the subjects on the study and only seven of the samples were like that. So it's a little bit hard to differentiate what is from hydroxyurea and what is from sickle cell um, in terms of in terms of infertility but what they looked at was uh this validated marker so um this this thing called anti-malarian hormone and it's been well studied and they know that low levels are associated with reproductive failure with inability to have children and it has to do with the, the number of viable eggs that you have. So um, when baby girls are born, they have the number of eggs that they're going to have for the rest of their life. And you know, some of those get used up by ovulation and and by having children, Um, some of them just die of natural causes. But especially if you get exposed to things like radiation, or certain kinds of chemotherapy, or, or just normal course of aging, some of those eggs also just die off and uh, eventually i think ruth in the bible had a baby at 90 but usually by the time people are in their early 50s they become um, infertile and often uh, before that but if it if it happens before 40 that's considered abnormal there's been a lot of studies looking at this anti-malarian hormone to show that it correlates with infertility so they looked at that in these samples from the msh study and what they found was, I, I think, not surprising for people who have taken care of sickle cell patients, but it is concerning that the, the anti malarian hormone levels were much lower at every age. Um, you know, in, in the samples from the patients who were in their 20s, um, in their 30s, in their 40s, they were much lower than the normal levels it wasn't, uh, statistically significant except at one time point, but the patients on that MSH study who had been randomized to hydroxyuria had a little bit lower levels as well. So it, it raises, you know, concerns, huge concerns about fertility in women with sickle cell in general, and also, right. you know, uh, raises a question, you know, could hydroxyurea contribute to that as well? And I, you know, I think, um, not in this study were patients who underwent stem cell transplant and got high doses of chemotherapy and i I think you know there's a lot of other questions that you can't answer with this kind of data but that you would like to know you know what predicts uh these fertility issues and but it was clear that even in in uh, um, 25 to 30 year old age group there were uh, patients whose it, um, anti-malarian hormone levels correlated with likely infertility that you wouldn't see in the normal population um, until people were in their forties. You know, I, I think we we talked today about how this is a you know a whole new field in sickle cell. I think this is a, this is the opening um, opening act. You know, the the idea that this is a problem is laid out here. It's clear. But it's going to need a whole lot more study and and study about you know what we can do about it but i i think really uh um, an out, outstanding paper really thought provoking and and really opens up a lot of a lot of questions that need to be
0: addressed. absolutely i mean hats off to dr lydia pecker and her group um for bringing attention to to this issue you know i, I think one thing that this has reinforced for me is having honest open discussions about medications when we initiate them right it's uh, I think sometimes we suffer from being a little paternalistic in our approach to patients with chronic diseases, where we feel like as physicians, this is what's best for our patients and this is what we're going to offer them. But the actuality in that is, you know, like, like what I alluded to earlier, we might not have the same priorities as as our patients, right? To, to our To our patients, maybe having a baby is more important than living to the age of 65 or 70 right and and that's that's a decision that a patient should get to make um so you know I i i
1: i totally agree with you dr z and i i think you know it's so important to have these open conversations and really lay out all the information as honestly and as completely and as uh even and fairly as we can and and really not come with an agenda and and really put it into the context of what our patients' life choices and goals and are and and how these things can, you know, help or, or hinder that. I, I think though, too, we, we have to be careful. I, I think whenever there's a study and, you know, here, I, I think there's an implication that maybe hydroxyurea has fertility issues. I, I think that that can be a real thing. I think though we have to, we also have to have some humility and say we don't know how much this may or may not be really clinically important. If you're healthy and you and you have maybe a little bit less anti-malarian hormone, maybe you're more likely to have kids because you're healthy because you're on hydroxyurea as opposed to somebody who wasn't and and maybe their anti-malarian hormone is better but their overall health is not as good and and so they're you know have more fertility issues so i i think you know this is a opening act that raises a lot of questions but i think you know we also have to take all of these things with you know through the proper lens and and consider the whole picture and and you know unfortunately we don't know everything we know what we know and, and I, I think you know this is a really important conversation to have with patients and
0: this is the beauty in science though right in being able to say that this is what science is it's it's not a, it's not static right it's a dynamic Absolutely. it's a dynamic process and as science goes on it's okay for people who believe in science to say science changes every single day, right? We learn every single day. And good science raises more questions, you know, and I, I think that's an example. That's a great, that's a quotable right there. That's a quotable right there. I love that. I don't, I don't think I've made it. <laughs> <laughs> Anyways, Dr. C, I want to appreciate you uh, once again for, um, you know, showing us Showing us the data side of sickle cell disease, we appreciate it. We appreciate the hustle you put into this segment, and uh, I look forward to the next one. Thanks, Dr. Z. All right, warriors, there we are with episode number 27 of Cheat Codes, a sickle cell podcast. Can you believe that, man? 27. Starting to add up,
1: and what a list of guests! I, uh, another, another great two guests today. But uh, It was really great talking to Tiana Wolford, and you know, great work she's doing,
0: and you're doing. No, thanks, man. I mean, uh, T-, T is uh, you know one of those one of those sickle cell advocates, patients that keeps me motivated. Uh, you know, I, I tell sickle cell patients a lot that we don't learn much about sickle cell disease in medical school, right? It's maybe a day, maybe it maybe a paragraph. All the learning I do about sickle cell disease is literally coming from patients with sickle cell disease. I, I have to, I learn from them about what it's like to have sickle cell disease. And that's, uh, that's uh, that's you can't replace that with a book. So it's, it's definitely bi-directional learning that's going on here. I'm, I'm happy, I'm here for it. I, I love the energy and it's energy that I wanna keep in my life. So uh, that's how I feel about Miss Tiana Wolford and uh, the, the initiative that, that she's working on. Dr. Mike, it's been a pleasure. Always. I hope you stay safe. I just got my second COVID vaccine an hour ago. So, uh, you know, I might not come to work tomorrow. But, uh, but that being <laughs> said, um, I look forward to, to seeing you in episode 28. Sounds good. All right. Take care.
1: Peace.